You know that uh, line that we sang about what our hearts long for really is the glory of God. That is absolutely true. We, we long deep down inside to know God, to know who he really is, the one true and living God. And that's the same thing as saying to know his glory. And uh, we're going to be talking about that this morning. Before we uh, go any further, though, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time that we've had to pray together, to give together, to sing your praises, to be reminded of who you are. We would ask that now, Lord, as we look at your word in this time of teaching, that we would hear from you. And we ask this for the sake of and for the glory of our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend, Jesus. Amen. Um, Exodus 33, we read these words. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. This whole thing of taking off the ornaments, the things that decorate, with which we decorate ourselves and so on, was at that time in particular a time of mourning. It was a sign of mourning. You know, we're not going to adorn ourselves the way we normally would. We're going to reflect the fact that, that we're reflecting and we're mourning in this situation. And, you know, this is such an interesting passage. It's easy to read over it and not uh, absorb what's going on here. God makes an offer to his people, and it's a pretty good offer. Uh, he is promising them almost everything they want. Uh, you will be free from the slavery that you experienced in Egypt. Uh, I will send an angel to guide you, he says, and to drive out your enemies in the promised land. Uh, you will have milk and honey galore. It'll be flowing there. You'll have material abundance and prosperity in the land. Just what you've always wanted, but there's just one thing, and that is this. I won't be going with you, he says. In other words, there will be no more Mount Sinai experiences. And those were a mixed bag of experiences, if you remember. No more pillars of fire, no more conviction of sin, no more experience of the holiness of God, especially as that relates to our unholiness. No more heartbreaking repentance and forgiveness. No more miraculous provisions. Remember the manna and the quail? We've looked at those passages. No more desert tribulations. No more moments of worship where I'm present and you are therefore in awe, even in fear. You can have everything you've always wanted, freedom, protection, your own land, success, abundance. The only thing is you won't have me, God says. I'm not going with you. And the response of the people is honestly amazing. 
they begin to mourn and they don't move. They don't get up and head to the promised land. Somehow they have the wisdom and the insight. I say somehow, it's a gift of God actually, but they have the wisdom and the insight to understand that all that stuff without God doesn't matter. We want to live in the presence of God, they say. And so Moses goes to talk to God and they have a a genuinely heart-to-heart conversation. It's a pivotal moment, actually. A pivotal moment in the history of God's people. This is what happens. Moses says to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. This is a pattern that we see with Moses. Moses reminding God of his ownership of, of his people. And the Lord replies, and there's a change here now in the perspective that the Lord has. I think God wanted dialogue, this dialogue, to take place with Moses. And it does, and there's a change now that occurs. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Moses and all of Israel actually get this one right, as right as you can get it. And it's a, it's a huge issue, frankly, that they did get this right. Otherwise, God's people would be no different than all the other peoples of the world. <clears throat> you see, the only thing that makes us any different from anyone else is that we live in the presence of and with the awareness of God. We know him. He is with us and uh, he is at work in us. We don't just do religion. We do relationship with God. That's the difference between the people of God and all other peoples. At least that's what's supposed to be the difference. It's supposed to be the difference when we go to work. It's supposed to be the difference when we interact in our families. It's supposed to be the difference when we recreate or when we relate to our neighbors It's this idea of doing life in the presence of God. How many of you have heard of this thing called the Shema? This is the prayer that Israel prayed in the morning and in the evening. And you find it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And uh, there in this prayer, it was to be a reminder to God's people of the importance of God's presence. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, this is how the prayer begins. This is why it's called the Shema. It's the first two words of the prayer. Every morning, every evening, they're reminding themselves of this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, not like all the other nations that worship many gods. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Talk about them all the time. 
Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The idea is don't think of doing life when you come and you go and you get up in the morning and you go to bed at night. Don't think of doing any of those things or anything in between without an awareness of and an appreciation of the presence of God because that is the one thing that makes us different from all other people's. Whatever we do, we do it in the presence of and with the awareness of God. That includes what we do here and now, too. Uh, It happens in all churches, all across the country, all around the world. A congregation gathers to worship. And after that worship is done, some people go home having been in the very presence of the living God. Uh, Maybe they wept or maybe they laughed or maybe they listened. Maybe they learned. They were encouraged. They were convicted. Maybe they were in awe. Maybe they were in fear. Maybe they were healed spiritually, physically, emotionally. They were in God's presence. And because of that, they go home different people, a little bit different, you see. Others... um, They leave that same gathering, that same worship service. They go home, nothing is different. They attended the same service. God is there, but they weren't aware of it, at least not very. They wouldn't say, yeah, I met with God. They just kind of sat through a service. What's the difference? Well, I have a hunch that it has to do with things like personal preparation. That's one thing that might be a difference. Personal appreciation, appreciating what God is doing and who God is. Might have something to do with attention given to the awareness of the presence of God. Sometimes we have to work at this. That's who we are. That's how it is. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever told God that you want to be aware of his presence in your life, in this moment, in this day, in this meeting? That you want to be aware of his presence more than you want anything else. You know, in Exodus uh, 33, this chapter uh, out of which we read some verses already, there's a, there's a section starting at verse 18 where Moses tells God he wants to see God's glory. This is one of the things that made Moses so unusual. Um, Moses wasn't content with, you know, just the the experience of God delivering the law and so on and so on. Moses wanted to see the face of God. Another way of saying he wanted to see the glory of God. He wanted to know the presence of God more deeply in his life. And it's a rather interesting passage. You can read it, uh, Exodus 33, 18 and following. God says, well, okay, you can't see my face because that'll kill you. In other words, the point is that I'm so holy and you're so not that if I just reveal myself to you, I mean, if we go eyeball to eyeball, so to speak, right, you're going to die. So what I'll do is I'll put you in a spot. He says, I'm going to cover you with my hand. It's metaphor, you know, God is, and I'm going to let you see my backside. I don't think he meant this. I mean, I, I, I think what God said, I'm going to let you see, you know, see me from the back, you know, and you'll see my glory, but not that much of it because I don't want to kill you. But I sure appreciate, I'm sure God was, I appreciate Moses that you want my presence and you want to know me more fully. You ever been at a church gathering together, uh, been in this room and, and uh, said, you know, Lord, 
Make me aware of your presence here. Have you ever invited God to speak to you in a worship service? You know, God, I'm, I'm here, I'm listening, talk to me. Have you ever asked God to receive your worship when you gather like this? Do you consciously come to be in his presence or are you just coming to a religious service? It's a loaded question, isn't it? I mean, if we're not thinking, if we're not intentional, we're kind of just coming to a religious service. You see, when it comes to being in the presence of God, I believe the, a great obstacle that many of us face is what, what we could call, for lack of a better title, is just spiritual mindlessness. Paul wrote these words about, uh, to, to a group of Christians who were living in Rome back in the day. He said this, he said, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. Everybody sees this. Everybody sees this. Atheist, believer, everything in between. Everybody sees this. It's clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Every single man, woman, and child. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says there are lots of people who live as if there is no God, in spite of all the evidence. They see God's work of creation. They see his power. They see his genius displayed over and over and over, constantly in front of them, but they are mindless of it and mindless of him. Mindlessness has to do with living without awareness. And even Jesus' followers, we do this a lot, much of the time. For example, quiz time. How many of you have ever uh, read something in the Bible? You're reading, you know, you're doing your duty, and you're going down, and you read, you read, you read. And then you get to the bottom of the page, and it suddenly occurs to you, dadgummit, I don't even, I don't know what I just read. Has that ever happened to you? Shame on you. No, I'm kidding. No. How about this one? Somebody has given a talk, a message. How many of you have found yourself sitting there? You're staring straight ahead into the lights. And then suddenly at some point, something wakes you out of your sleep and you realize you don't have any idea what the speaker's talking about. Anybody been there and done that? How many of you need me to repeat the question? Yeah, here's one. This has actually happened to me. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but how many of you have ever been in a small group, somebody sharing about something that's going on in their life or some prayer need that they have. They're either celebrating or they're asking for help, asking for prayer. You're tired, you're distracted, maybe you're bored. You realize you weren't listening, you missed it. And then it's time to wrap it all up. And somebody says, Dwayne, would you pray for this person's situation? It's like, oh crap. <laughs> Lord, why did, why? <laughs> you know, and your mindlessness gets exposed. Yeah, anybody? Or is it just me? Okay, some of you. Here's the truth, folks. Our spiritual mindlessness, our lack of awareness of God's presence is a serious, serious impediment to our being who Jesus wants us to be. You know, the one thing you can say about Jesus is he was never, ever mindless of the presence of his heavenly father. Not ever, not for a second. 
You know, me, on the other hand, I can have a problem in my life that I'm worrying about. Something that's in there, you know, and it's lodged in my mind and I'm worrying about it. And I can go for a considerable stretch of time doing this before I remember to pray about it. Or before I remember that God is with me, that God is in this problem, that that God is in me and we're going to go through it together. You see, that is spiritual mindlessness. I think back to when my kids were little many years ago and at night, you know, you put them to bed and yet a lot of you parents do this. You get them up there. It's time to pray. You read a Bible story with them and so on. And I can remember being so tired uh, and just wanting some of my own time, right? I'm going through the motions. Understand parents, whether you realize it or not. And I, I, I get this is a, this takes a perspective change, but those are actually holy moments, moments where God is present, you know? And I just wanted to get it over. It was routine. It was something I knew I needed to do. It was something I was committed to doing. And it felt sometimes like a duty. It was a battle. I had to get it done. But I was missing the presence of God. It's a battle. This thing is a battle. Let's, help, let's, let's see if we can bring all this, you know, really close to home. Uh, when we are in worship here in this room, Do you understand that this really is one of the most important moments in the weekly rhythm of a Jesus follower? Now, of course, I'm going to say that I'm, I'm a minister, right? But I think I would say it even if I'm not. I'll tell you this, I mean it. You know, we say and we sing some wonderful words together when we gather in this place. I don't know if you noticed that. Words about God, words about Jesus, words about the Holy Spirit, words about salvation, words about eternal life, words about the kingdom of Jesus. (laughs) And yet, you know, to look at some of us, some of the time, you you would think that we were reciting the ingredients off a cereal box. I mean, you know, that's kind of the uh, level of emotion that we experience or the intellectual connection, because it's not really about emotion per se, but it's about what's up here affecting what's down here, right? a thoughtful embrace or response, intentionality about taking what I know and making it affect what I do. Now, I admit too that sometimes when I come here, I I should never admit these things because, you know, but I'm old and I have some job security. I I admit too that sometimes when I come here, I, I bring with me all kinds of distractions, things that dull my spiritual awareness. They make me mindless of God's presence. And you understand that this is why we actually do some of the things that we do in this room. We began this worship service with a call to worship. Oftentimes when we do that, there's only about 20 of us here. That was not the case this morning. I, I, I applaud you. Many of you got here on time. You were in your seats. You were ready to go. The reason we do a call to worship, friends, is to break mindlessness. We don't do it for filler. We do it to break spiritual mindlessness, get us in the game, you see. I confess that there have been many times here when some area in my life is not yielded to God. He's at work on me. My heart can be cold. It can be sinful. It can be not attentive to the Lord. I don't want to look at it, perhaps. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to be broken. I don't want to change. I don't want to repent. I kind of want to stay spiritually mindless. You know, that's keeping God at a distance. It's numbing the reality that he is present, whether I like it or not. 
And so I just kind of slide along. I go through the motions. And I've been thinking about this all week, uh, saying this very next thing, and that is just this. I stand before you this morning, and I feel compelled to say, I don't want to live that way. I know better. I know that when I live that way, I am robbed of the goodness of God. I am robbed of the richness of life. I really don't want to live that way. Nor do I want us as a church to live that way. I need to be more aware of the presence and the reality of God in my life. Any of you feel that way? Anybody? Understand, this is one of the great battles of living in a broken, fallen world, of being a broken, fallen person. And it always has been. This is one of the big battles. You know, you talk about Isaac and he had two sons, Jacob and Esau. You remember that? Genesis 28 tells us this very interesting story. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Jacob is actually running away at this point from his brother Esau. He's stolen the inheritance from his brother, uh, the, the, uh, the blessing uh, uh, inheritance. And it says, when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Uh, taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head. He lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching up to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Whoa, what a dream. And there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. And I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and the east, to the north, to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it, he says. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he calls it Bethel, God's house. Pretty neat. But you know what? Many, many places in scripture, Numbers 14 for one tells us that the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. Point is, everywhere is Bethel. Everywhere's the house of God. Just happened to be a moment in time when Jacob became aware of it, you see? And Jacob says, wow, God is in this place. And I didn't even know it. I, I've been spiritually mindless. This time, this place is an awesome place. And I didn't realize it. Awesome because God is here, he says. And yet, honestly, Bethel was just an ordinary place. It's a place just like this, for that matter. It's a place where God is prepared to meet us if we will prepare to meet him. God wants every one of his children to have what Moses had and what, of course, Jacob had in that moment at that time, namely an awareness and a passion for his presence. When you're aware of God's presence, it's awesome. It's fearsome. 
can be. It can be life-changing. It can be overwhelmingly encouraging. It can be overwhelmingly convicting. It can be overwhelmingly empowering. It produces a peace in people in times and in circumstances when there should be no peace. It changes a person's perspective. It changes a person's life, the presence of God. And the fact is that through God's Holy Spirit, God has poured out his presence in you and in me. God has guaranteed that he is always, it's the word he uses, always with us. Right now, right here, when you get up, when you go home, God goes with you. He doesn't stay here. Every moment, every place, every circumstance, God is with you. It's no coincidence whatsoever that when Jesus walked the planet before he went to be with the Father in heaven, he took on the name of what? Emmanuel. God with us. Wow. You see, it's at times like this when we come together in worship, we ask him to make us especially mindful of his presence. When we gather here, God is not more present. We are just hopefully more aware, or at least we should be. Understand, this is why we gather in worship times. This is why we do it consistently. This is why we do it week after week. Because if you're like me, you forget all the time that God is with you. And you need teaching and you need reminders that he is. You see, here we get reminded of his presence, reminded of his power, reminded of his wisdom, reminded of his purpose, reminded of his provision. We become recipients of his peace. That's precisely why the writer of Hebrews says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. What he's saying is, let us not take casually the need that we have to have regular rhythms rhythms of gathering. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so when we come here to meet, we want to do more than just sit through a service. We want more to happen than to just be spectators. We are worshipers. We have come to meet God. We've come to remember truth, to declare truth to celebrate truth, to be encouraged by truth, to be convicted by truth, to live in truth. So much of the world that we live in tells us lies over and over and over and over. The world tells us lies about life. The world tells us lies about our own personal identity. The world tells us lies about our value. Some people matter, some people don't, according to our world. The world tells us lies about what's right, about what's wrong about what's good and about what's bad. When we come here, we want to be reminded about who God is, about what truth is, about what life is all about, about who we are. You know, when you come to worship services here at Deer Creek Church, uh, let, let me just get as practical as I can with the time that remains and just make a few suggestions. May I? Okay. Number one, let's put it up there. Most of you were this morning, actually. A good many of you were. 
I asked Aaron as he was going down from the platform and I was coming up, I said, were you shocked at how many people were here for the call to worship? He said, yeah, I actually had four slides that were gonna go into the sermon right here uh, just to shame you. No, 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 no. But just to talk about the call to worship. But you know what? Most of you guys were here and I applaud you. That's the way to begin a worship service, you see. Uh, Good job. You know, getting here early enough to do the family and the community stuff, greet people, hug people, love on people, greet new people if you see them. Uh, Be here early enough to get called into worship, though, to get shaken out of mindlessness. We could call it that, but it's a little wordy. But, But that's what a call to worship is, to get shaken out of mindlessness, to get your mind and your heart in the game and to become aware that you're entering into the presence of God. He wants to speak to us. He wants to work in our lives. So when you come here, however you do this, whether through the call to worship, whether it's a prayer you pray, say to the Lord, Lord, I am here to meet with you. I am listening. I'm going to actively engage in worship, praying things, declaring things, remembering things. God, you are awesome. Tell him that. Believe me, I know how hard this is too. I know about busy days and pressing schedules and getting families to church on time. I know how all of this tends to create spiritual mindlessness too. I battle exactly the same things. I also know about recreational temptations. Many a Sunday, I've heard the mountains calling my name, but I I just wanted to get paid, so I showed up. But I get it. There are all kinds of things that have a way of keeping us from getting here or making it difficult to really be a participant when we are here. I get it. That's the battle I mentioned. It's a huge battle. This is why, too, it's so important for us to to get around time so we move out of spiritual mindlessness and into a mindset of worship to get in the game. Uh, The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk said this. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Now, this might surprise you. He doesn't say, therefore, jump up and down and get emotional. What he actually says is be silent before him. That was the prophet Habakkuk's way of saying, shut up and think for a little bit. You really can't worship without engaging the heart and the mind. This is that piece of thinking, engaging the mind. You know, somebody told me uh, just this week that somebody visited here. I think they're probably from a, a very charismatic church would be my guess. I don't know that for a fact, but they said they described our congregation as a bunch of tidy whities I'm not sure what that means, <laughs> but I, I think I know what that means. You know, that was their perception that Deer Creek, when we, when we gather and worship, we're kind of just a little bit uptight and we're kind of probably we're mostly whitish or what have you, you know, various versions of white. Anyhow, or your, you know, your hands are in your pockets or what. I think, that, I think they were just saying, we're kind of just, mm, you know. That was their perspective. Now, I know many of you, and I know that that isn't really uh, altogether true at all. And again, it's always more important. You know, we don't know what's going on up here in anybody's experience, do we? We don't know what they're thinking, what they're saying, what they're praying. So bringing judgment around this toward each other is an unhealthy, bad thing to do. You, you could be so wrong about somebody. They might be standing there like this, but who knows what they're what business they're doing with God, how engaged they are in worshiping God. So I always want to be merciful and gracious in this stuff. 
The prophet Habakkuk says, be silent before him. And I think really the subtext of that is think, 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 be engaged, don't be mindless. And that's when you're in the temple. And of course, when we come to worship, we're here in the church. Think, praise, give thanks, be grateful, be repentant, rejoice, let him speak to you. Be mindful of whose presence you're in. I would add, use all the various elements in our worship service to your advantage. When we pray, use that in your worship. Take advantage of the prayers prayed. When prayer takes place here, your job is not to just listen to the person who's praying. Your job is to use that time, those words, if they work, for your own personal communication with God. We're so conditioned in our culture to think of ourselves as spectators whenever we come and we gather together with other people. This is not a spectator deal. When there are prayers being prayed, that is your time to say those words to God or use other words if you need to. Maybe you see somebody in the room and you suspect they need prayer. Okay, that's God leading you. Pray for them. Maybe you need personal prayer. Maybe you need to ask a friend after the service, pray for me. Maybe you're moved to praise God. Maybe you're moved to ask God for healing, to ask God for wisdom, to ask God for power, to ask God for guidance. When God's people pray, God's power is often displayed. God's presence is often felt. I can't tell you how many times I prayed with people in difficult circumstances and as we talk and you listen and then you pray with them, the peace of God which passes human understanding comes to them. That's supernatural, friends. Uh, I am convicted too that we need to create opportunities on Sunday, more opportunities for prayer. In our worship here, we need to talk to God corporately, personally, always honestly, hopefully, about financial needs or relational needs. Anybody here got any relational issues going on in your life? Any? Wow, that's amazing. Nobody has any relational issues. Anybody got any? No, I'm not even going to ask that. But, you know, spiritual needs, physical needs, you name it, all kinds of needs, always in the spirit of saying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the fall, uh, we we are going to have some taught up, prepared groups of people after service to be ready and equipped to pray with people. And we're going to make that a regular part of what we do. On another note, you know, we have times in here when we sing together. Did you notice that? And uh, we don't want to do that mindlessly, do we? You know, there are 41 different Psalms in the Psalms that, that actually command us to sing. Singing is actually meant to move God's people to praise, to places of trust, to places of peace, to places of obedience. Our singing can express joy, it can express thanksgiving, it can express dependence, it can express repentance, it can express trust, it can be a declaration of truth. Singing is meant to deliver us from spiritual mindlessness. So when we gather and we sing in this place, we need to use the words in each song as an opportunity to say something important, to declare something true, to express some need to God. Singing is communication in our worship service. It's not performance. 
Uh, it, it is not ancillary stuff, you know, filler, gap filler stuff. It's talking to God. It's listening to God. And the same can be said about things like confession of sin and pronouncement of forgiveness, those kinds of things. When we do that stuff, it's not filler. It's actually gospel. It's a reminder that of our brokenness, but it's been fixed. It's been fixed by Jesus. It's there to awaken us when we do those things together out of spiritual mindlessness. It's to call us into participating, into practicing worship. Every, every Sunday when we gather, that's what we're doing. We're practicing worship together. You know, there comes a time in the worship too when we receive an offering. Anybody notice that? That's not an awkward interruption to worship. It's a tangible demonstration of worship. The apostle Paul said this, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And it's interesting to me that Paul says that we should give what we have decided in our heart to give, meaning it's not mindlessness. We've thought about it, preferably prayed about it. We've prepared We've anticipated giving a gift ahead of time. You give it to God saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your daily provision, your daily bread. I give this gift to you to use in great ways. Make something wonderful come of it, God. Advance your kingdom. I give it to you as a sacrifice of praise. And recognize that what you give, God does use. Absolutely God uses. Uh, he funds things here like our mission partners, um, people that uh, we have engaged with and uh, we cooperate with to accomplish ministry, whether it's here or it's regional or it's international. You know, presently we are giving more to our ministry partners than ever before in our church's history right now. Yeah, amen is right. Uh, that's folks in Myanmar and Ukraine, Guatemala, uh, Third Story here in Denver, uh, local partners like Love, Inc., uh, ministries like Lifeline, which is a crew ministry and crew ministries here in the city. Uh, I mean, these are partnerships we celebrate. We believe that God has guided us to partner with his people in advancing the kingdom. When you give, you fund that. In addition to many other things, you're giving here funds community service. We're going to be building, as you know, a, uh, a playground coming up in July, and you help make those kinds of things happen. I hope you'll actually be there to help make those kinds of things happen too. But, you know, gospel ministry to kids, to students, you also help start new churches. You know, Brett and Aaron, uh, they actually, this year, here in July, they begin to transition and turn now specifically towards the planting of a church in the Centennial area. You're going to hear more about that. We couldn't be more excited about this. This is what God wants us to do, plant churches. That's why we plant churches in Myanmar. That's why we plant churches in Ukraine. That's why we, we plant churches in Guatemala. Well, we also plant churches in Centennial. Uh, we have another uh, young couple, Daniel and Hannah, who will be here in the very end of July, beginning of August. They're church planting uh, interns. They're going to be here for three years, and we're going to release them in the third year to go plant a church. Uh, and we couldn't be more excited about that. Recognize your giving not only enables ministry, it helps you keep your priorities right. Do you understand that? You see, when I honor God with my giving, with my tithe, it frees me from the way money wants to attach itself to me, wants to define me, wants to own me, wants to be my master. And don't be deceived, friends. Money does want to be your master. If you don't believe me, try to give it away. You see, my giving frees me from being too dependent.
dependent on money, too obsessed with money from thinking that my happiness depends on money. And giving makes me more like God. It makes me generous, just plain generous. Friends, here's the deal. If you think that you can follow Jesus saying, what's mine is mine, I don't need to live generously, meaning I don't need to give, I don't need to tithe, I don't need to advance the kingdom. Well, you're just wrong. You couldn't be more wrong. Jesus practiced tithing. Jesus taught tithing. Jesus lived generously because that's who God is. And he happens to be God. Part of what we do in worship is we practice living generously too. We just had an opportunity this week. Uh, A young woman had an emergency, went to the hospital. And this is a very small thing, but somebody in our church has been witnessing to her and reaching out to her and speaking into her life and and just loving on her. And and she had a situation where she had medications now that uh, she she almost died. Uh, Coming out of the hospital, she had medications she had to get. They were expensive, too expensive for her, couldn't pay them. And we were asked as a church, you know, could we help? And we did. Well, your, your giving did that, bought her medicine. How cool is that? I mean, that's just cool. Now, oh, and this, this person now knows that not only does this one person love her and care about her, and then he, and this person does love and care about her, but there's a group of people too who call the church that don't even know her, but would love to know her and certainly want to care for her. Why? Because that's what Jesus would do. Anyway, very, very, very cool Uh, cool thing. Some of us give monthly, some of us give weekly, some of us give here, some of us give online. All of us just need to give consistently, sacrificially, and mindfully. Mindfully. In our worship service, uh, a considerable amount of time is spent teaching and learning. Has anybody ever noticed that? Yeah. That too is an act of worship. We open ourselves up to God and we say, God, teach me, speak to me. Make this not a waste of time, <laughs> you know? Uh, every pastor in one form or another, their prayer when they get up to say something is, oh God, don't let this be a waste of time because nothing I say is gonna accomplish anything. And if you're at work, God, you'll take something and you'll speak to people who need to hear it, you know? And so we ought to come into worship and say, you know, teach me, Lord, convict me, encourage me, change my thinking, change my heart, change my behavior. Help me know you better. Help me love you more. Help me obey you more fully. This is the point of teaching. It's change. That's the point of it. The point of teaching is not just to know more stuff. Many of us already know too much. We just need to start applying it. It's to understand God better, myself better, life better, truth better, better so that I live differently, so that I look and act and behave more like Jesus. That's the point of teaching. And when we're done teaching, uh, we usually respond in our church with song, some form of a response song. And then we lead into a benediction here where we are sent out in one form or another to live differently. That's the point of the benediction oftentimes. And all of these things take place in our worship here. And all of them are opportunities to recognize and to remember and to be mindful of the presence of God and to worship him in ways that delight him. Friends, it's just so easy to come to a worship service and not meet God, to come to a worship service and not talk to God, to come to a worship service and not engage with God. In other words, to be spiritually mindless, And you know what? When that happens, the evil one wins. And he wins a lot of battles this way. 
Thank God he doesn't win the war. But he wins too many battles this way because we go through what we do mindlessly. You know, the climax to this whole story is that we read a few minutes ago is in Exodus 34. Moses has been talking to God and God tells Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest, he tells them. And then, uh, then we read this, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped because you see, that's what it's all about. Okay, God, if you'll go with me, I'm going with you. You know, I mean, the, the presence of God will be with us. And he says, oh Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Here's the deal, Penn. We are that inheritance. You see, Jesus' death on the cross ensures and guarantees that we are this inheritance that Moses talks about. We are the people of God. Even though we are stiff-necked, I know that about you. You're stiff-necked and you're hard-hearted. I know that about you because I know that about me. But you know what? Our God is so good. He sends Jesus to take care of that serious stiff-necked problem that I have, that you have, that we have. And when we gather in a room like this, we're here to celebrate that that problem has been fixed. We have the righteousness of Jesus. Nothing could be better. You know, this work of God culminates in Jesus' coming. Um, the Lord goes on and says, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. And you understand the fulfillment of that, the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is Jesus' coming. It was Jesus dying. It was Jesus coming back to life. That staggering truth should shake all of us out of our spiritual mindedness, mindlessness. We're his community. We're his inheritance. We are the people who are supposed to demonstrate the reality of Jesus' truth and the reality of Jesus' power and the reality of Jesus' life to the world. And to do that, we need to do all that we do, whether it's here in this room or at home in our families or at work or wherever it is, we need to do all that we do with an awareness of the presence of God. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray. Father, uh, forgive us, God, for our spiritual mindlessness. It seems to be sometimes, Lord, almost the default of our heart, our human heart. But Father, we have your spirit. We have your truth. We have Jesus. And so we can contend against that, that brokenness in us. God, we want to be a people who when we gather here and worship, we do it engaged. And when we go out of these doors and into our lives, our busy lives, we do it with the awareness of your presence and your power and your provision in our lives. May you work to that end in us, Father. And may you inhabit our praises now. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.